Thank Roger for praying, particularly for Chris Williams. Chris is a, a very beloved friend of mine. He has been here and I have been there and he is just a godly young man who has a great ministry there. And we want to continue to pray for him as he endeavors to distribute tapes throughout India. The majority of the literate people in India speak English. In fact, India is the largest English-speaking country on the face of the earth, strange as it might seem. And so we have a tape ministry there, and we're very, very grateful to God for that. Another encouraging word, last week we were able to launch a new tape ministry called Word of Grace Europe. For the first time, we will now be able to distribute tapes from a base in the south of England throughout Europe and we're very very thankful to the Lord for that currently some, some of our people are in South Africa and we are on the edge of going on daily radio across all of southern Africa not just South Africa but Swaziland and other places as well and so it's exciting to see how God is extending the teaching and preaching of his word around the world and we want to be faithful to pray for these many areas Let's go back to our study of the disciples for a little time this morning. And I want to remind you of the ones that we have already looked at. You know we've talked about Peter. We've talked about Andrew. We've talked about James. We've talked about John. We've talked about Philip. We've talked about Nathaniel, also called Bartholomew. And we've talked about Matthew. And we have said that they are illustrations of the fact that God uses all kinds of people. In fact, they were, they were very common for the most part. We saw Peter as that sort of strong initiator, that dynamic personality, that aggressive leader. We saw Andrew as a rather humble, gentle, unconspicuous type of guy. We saw James, the zealous, passionate, uncompromising, task-oriented, somewhat ambitious type of man. And then there was John, who was sensitive, loving, and intimate. And then we talked about Philip, who was kind of skeptical and analytical and a little bit mechanical, slow to believe, not too bright, it seems, not having a lot of vision, pessimistic, insecure. We talked about Nathaniel, who was a seeker of truth, very open, very honest, very straightforward, clear-minded, meditative. We talked about Matthew, who was um, an outcast, an extortionist, a tax collector, a traitor, the most hated of men. And yet one who loved the riffraff of society, who loved the outcasts and who sought to bring them to Christ. Now we come to the last four. And three of these four we know very little about. First of all, James, the son of Alphaeus. You will find his name in each of the four lists in Matthew, Mark, Luke and Acts. Now we don't know very much about him, frankly. There's a famous line in the Apocrypha that says, let us now praise famous men. Well, it's a nice thought, but if we are to praise famous men, then we're never going to talk about James, the son of Alphaeus. He never would have been a guest on a TV talk show. No way. He would never be invited to write a foreword for a book. He would never be asked to pray at a convention. And they would never do an article on him in Christianity Today. Very obscure guy. He had a famous name, but it was made famous by other people. James, the son of Zebedee, and James, the brother of our Lord. But this James, James, the son of Alphaeus, is also called James the Micros, or James the Micron, James the Little, in Mark 15:40. Now, what does it mean, James the Little? We don't know. It may have meant that he was little in stature. It may have meant that he was young in age. It may have meant that he was sort of little in influence. It probably meant all of those things. It became his nickname, James the Little. He may well have been a small little guy, somewhat young, and not very influential. So they called him Little James, just to distinguish him from Big James, who would have been James, the son of Zebedee. He was not a world beater in physical terms. He was not a world beater in any terms that we know about. In fact, are you ready for this? The New Testament tells us absolutely nothing about him. 
But I would like to speak about him anyway. <laughs> it's amazing what you can draw out of the white spaces in the Bible. His, uh, his distinguishing mark is just the fact that the Bible doesn't say anything about him. Now, you have to be somewhat unique to have lived your life as a disciple and have the verdict be no comment. He's obscure. There's no recognition of him at all. He displayed, obviously, no great leadership ability. He asked no significant questions that were significant enough to be recorded in Scripture. He demonstrated no unusual insight that had to be written down. He didn't do anything of particular consequence, but his name remains. His labors are in absolute obscurity. There's only one little piece of tradition that exists about James, the son of Alphaeus, and that is that he preached with holy power in Persia, which is now Iran, and that they didn't want to listen to him, so they crucified him. And you know the story of Iran. They were left with a legacy of the Muslim religion. Maybe that was God's judgment on their treatment of this little guy. You see, the Lord uses people who don't do anything particularly extraordinary. That's nice to know, isn't it? I mean, we would have assumed that when Jesus picked the twelve, he, he would have picked twelve dynamic leaders. But here is one we know absolutely nothing about. He's one of those silent, unknown soldiers. And yet he ranks with the twelve and he will sit on a throne and judge the tribes of Israel in the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. He is among those unnamed heroes at the end of Hebrews chapter 11. Doesn't tell us who they were, just tell us, tells us how faithful they were to the purposes of God. Now just a couple of personal insights that might help with this guy. James the Little or James the son of Alphaeus. In Mark 2.14... It says about Matthew that he was called Levi, and it says that his father was Alphaeus. That's interesting. Maybe James the Little was the little brother of Matthew. That's interesting. We also learn when we get around the cross, and some of the gospel record about the cross tells us, about Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Clopas is a form of Alpheus. And it says, Mary, the wife of Clopas, the mother of James, which means that maybe James was the cousin of our Lord, since he was the son of Mary, who seems to be Mary, the mother of Jesus' sister-in-law. A little confusing, but you get the point. Maybe he was the brother of Matthew. Maybe he was the cousin of Jesus. And maybe this group is a little more tightly knit than we thought. Could he have been Matthew's brother and Jesus' cousin? Maybe so. We don't know anything about him for sure. But he was a worker for Christ. And he was faithful. And apparently, he was crucified. And we learn again that the Lord uses obscure, little, unknown, sort of unsung heroes who may have been able to claim being a brother to Matthew or maybe being able to claim to be the cousin of Jesus, but apart from that, couldn't claim much of anything. But James also was given the power to cast out demons. He was given the power to heal the sick. He preached. And he's unknown. And the Spirit of God felt no compulsion to tell us anything about it. You know, the kingdom of God is full of people like that. And they will in eternity receive their great reward. The second person in the last group is named Thaddeus. Thaddeus. He's also called Lebius. He's also called Judas, son of James. He has three names in the Bible. Thaddeus called Lebius in Matthew 10.3. And then Judas, the son of James in Luke and Acts. Judas was probably his common name. You know what Judas means? Jehovah leads. That was his common Hebrew name. But the other two names may have been names given to him because uh, somebody wanted to tag him with some descriptive. Thaddeus is a very interesting name. It's a Hebrew term 
that means breast child. And perhaps his parents gave him that name because he was the littlest, youngest child. And when they were describing their kids, they said, and then there's breast child, this little one who's still at his mother's breast. Or he may have been named Thaddeus because he was his mother's favorite. The word Lebius means in Hebrew heart child, breast child, heart child. It can also mean courageous heart. So maybe he was special to his parents and maybe he had a great courageous heart. Perhaps that's why he was given those names. Tender as a child in his mother's arms and courageous as a man. Like James, the little one, we don't know really anything about him. His life is very, very obscure. Uh, he would never have made it into who's who in American colleges and universities. There never would have been any significant buildings named after him or institutions. In fact, very rarely do people even name their children Thaddeus. But one time he shows up in Scripture, John 14. Verse 21. Jesus says, He who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me, and he who loves me shall be loved by my Father, and I will love him and disclose myself to him. Then verse 22 says, Judas, remember that's his other name, Thaddeus, Lebius, Judas. And then in parenthesis it says what? Not Iscariot. Okay, it's the other one. He says to Jesus, Lord, what then has happened? That you are going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world. This is bothering him. You see, Jesus has been saying that I'm not going to disclose myself to the world. He said, well, what's happened to make you decide that? What is the intent of the question? Very simple. The disciples, every one of them, believed that the Messiah would set up an earthly, what? Kingdom. They all believed that. They believed that they were following the Messiah who down the road somewhere was going to defeat Rome, free Palestine, establish his kingdom, sit on a throne, and elevate them to places of significant leadership. So they were following Jesus with this tremendous expectation. That's why James and John, the sons of Zebedee, and their mother went to Jesus and said, Can we sit on your right and left hand in the kingdom? They were all expecting this. Jesus was going to set up his kingdom. And now all of a sudden, Jesus starts saying things like, Well, I, I'm, not going to, I'm not going to disclose who I am to the world. I, I, I'm not going to bring a message to the world. Uh, it's not going to happen. And so Thaddeus articulates a question that was really on the mind of everybody. What do you mean? What has happened that you're going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? I mean, how can that be? Sooner or later, you've got to take over. If you are the king, he is saying, then why don't you take charge? Show yourself to the world. Why do you manifest yourself only to this little motley, obscure group of 12 guys? Why doesn't every eye see you and recognize you? Why don't you sort of take your sword out and start whacking away at Rome and destroy your enemies and the enemies of Israel? How in the world are you going to save the world if you don't disclose yourself to the world? How are you going to take over if they don't even know you're around? Now, what do we learn about Thaddeus? Thaddeus was a man of action. He wanted to go for it. He couldn't handle some kind of delayed gratification here. He wanted to move out and take the kingdom. Jesus answered and said to him, verse 23, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My father will love him and we will come to him and make our abode with him. He who doesn't love me doesn't keep my words. And the word which you hear is not mine, but the father's who sent me. What a strange answer. Doesn't even an answer. Thaddeus says, uh, why aren't you going to disclose yourself to the world? And Jesus answers and says to him, hey, do one thing. What is it? Shut up and what? 
Obey what I say. And the net effect of that is, look, um, you don't need to worry about that kind of stuff. Would you just take care of obedience? If you love me, you'll keep my words. If you love me, you won't question my words. You understand that? Why are you questioning what I say? If you really love me, you'll just obey it. Now, this brings us to a very important point. He says, if you obey me, then what will happen is this. We will come to him, that is, my father and I, and make our abode with him. He's saying, I am going to reveal myself, but I'm going to reveal myself not to the whole world, but to the people who obey me. This is a tremendous truth. Young people, it is true from then to the present tense. The only people to whom Christ ever reveals himself are those committed to obeying him. That is a spiritual axiom. A spiritual axiom. In a famous discussion on truth, Robert Louis Stevenson quotes Thoreau as saying, quote, It takes two to speak the truth, one to speak and another to hear. And you remember that it says in John that Jesus came to his own and his own what? Received him not. Because they wouldn't receive him, they couldn't know the truth. So Jesus says, look, light has come into the world, but men love darkness rather than light. The point is the only people to whom a revelation is made are those who hear and obey. To the rest, Paul says, the gospel is hid from them. So Thaddeus learns a very important lesson. If you want to know the truth, you must be willing to obey it. The rest of the world doesn't want to know it. They're not willing to obey it, so they will never know it. That's all we know about Thaddeus. He was a man of action. He needed really to be told, don't ask questions, just obey. By the way, there's a legend about Thaddeus. And the legend about him is that he healed many people of their diseases. He had the gifts of healing and casting out demons. We know that from Matthew 10, as all the disciples did. And the story goes that he healed many people of their diseases, including a man from Syria who happened to be the king, King Adgar. As a result of healing Adgar, tradition says Adgar became a Christian. But Adgar had an apostate nephew who took him prisoner and martyred him. That is Thaddeus. Now, if that's true, it speaks about the courage of Thaddeus. By the way, if you ever look into church history, you'll see a symbol for Thaddeus. It's a club. It's a huge club like a baseball bat. Because the tradition says that the nephew of Adgar killed Thaddeus by beating him to death with a club. So that breast child, heart child, courageous man may have needed that courage in the end. Number 11 in our list is a man by the name of Simon. Simon. He is called Simon the Zealot. Have you heard that? Or Simon, listen carefully to this, the Canaanian, not the Canaanite, the Canaanian. Matthew uses Canaanian. Mark uses Canaanian. And the better manuscripts translate that Greek word, kananias. Now that word comes from a Hebrew word, kana, which means to be jealous or to be zealous. It is the same as zelates in the Greek, which means to be zealous, to be jealous. So when it says Simon the Canaanian, it doesn't mean Canaanite. It means the zealot, the jealous, zealous person. Now, they both refer to being a zealot. It has nothing to do with geography. It doesn't mean he's from Canaan or Cana. It means he was a zealot. Now, what is a zealot? Now, in, in Israel, at this particular time, there were a number of sects. You've heard of this one, the Pharisees, right? They were the legalistic sect. Then there were the Sadducees, and they were the liberal sect who didn't believe in resurrection and miracles. They were the liberals. Then there were the Essenes, 
And the Essenes were the monastics. They were the, the monkish people. There is some belief that John the Baptist was an Essene because he lived in the wilderness. The Essenes lived out by the Dead Sea up in the mountains. And it was, by the way, the Essenes who produced the Dead Sea Scrolls, which have since been found. The fourth sort of faction of Judaism were the Zealots. They were Jewish terrorists. Okay? They were terrorists, plain and simple. They were known as the Sicarii because they carried a small curved dagger. That, that word comes from. And they went around assassinating people. They were called the assassins. They were the last of the great Jewish parties to emerge, and they were the most passionate patriots for Judaism. The Pharisees hated the Romans because the way the Romans abused the law. The Sadducees hated the Romans because of the way they encroached on their authority. The Essenes didn't pay attention to the Romans because they didn't pay attention to anybody. The Zealots hated the Romans and went so far as to murder them, assassinate them. Now, here you have one of the twelve who is an assassin. He is a zealot. Their existence seems to have come from the Maccabean period when the Greeks were holding sway in Palestine and they made a determined stand against the foreign influence of the Greeks on their nation and their religion. They were the strictest sect of rabbinical schools. They were even more strict than the Pharisees in adhering to the law. They insisted on the literal obligation of traditional renderings of the law. They took the conservative interpretation in everything. They looked for a Messiah who would come with a big sword and lop heads off Romans. They were red-hot patriots. They had banded together under a man named Judas of Samala to deliver Judea from Roman domination. And the history of their crimes is absolutely amazing. They became a law unto themselves. They lived outside the law. They did exactly what they wanted when they wanted. Josephus tells us a lot about him. Josephus, the Jewish historian, he says that Palestine was under Roman rule and the Jews couldn't accept the fact that the Romans were there. So the country was always like a sleeping volcano about to erupt. And when it erupted, it erupted in the hands of the zealots. For many years, Herod the Great, who was an Idumean foreign king, had succeeded in holding the nation together in peace by sheer force of personality and skill and diplomacy. But even he couldn't control the zealots. He died in 4 BC, divided up his territory between his three sons, Philip, Antipas, and Archelaus. But before this new arrangement could ever be ratified by Rome, Palestine erupted. And the blaze was fiercest in Galilee, and it was run by this man, Judas, who was leading a zealot revolution. By the way, the Romans broke the power of Judas, quelled the rebellion, and so the zealots went underground and became terrorists. In fact, on one occasion when Quirinius introduced a census for taxation, it exploded again. Another holy war led again by the zealots. Finally, they killed this leader, Judas, but the zealots continued. They developed, as I said, into the Sicarii, the assassins, and they were sworn to murder. That was their goal. They were in guerrilla warfare. That's the way they operated. It is amazing, isn't it? One of them became a disciple. What is interesting about it is, in any other context, Simon the Zealot would have assassinated Matthew the tax collector. But for three years, they had to pal around. Spiritual considerations take over. They probably became friends. Very interesting. It's interesting that even after he became a disciple, he's still called the zealot. What that means is he probably had that kind of personality. He was probably just a zealous guy. And he, he turned all that zeal to a better leader than Judas of Samala. But he must have been just as zealous, just as dynamic, fiercely loyal, courageous, maybe somewhat narrow-minded, somewhat enthusiastic, a doer, a man of action, um, tough. Some of you might have been at the prayer breakfast we had Saturday at Grace Church. 
<laughs> a guy walked up to me and big, strong guy, like a brick, just strong guy. And he walked up to me real intense. He said, he said, I want to give you my testimony. And I said, great. He said, he said, uh, you know, he was just, you know, really intense. He said, uh, I used to be in Vietnam. And he said, man, he said, I killed. I just killed all the time. He said, I, I just killed. And he said, uh, he said, my job was a scout. He said, I was a scout. You know what a scout does? A scout finds the enemy. And you know how we found the enemy? He says, we took a helicopter up. And he said, my job was to sit on the skid so that, that I would draw the enemy fire. And when the enemy fired, we could see the blaze of the muzzle and the gun. And then we'd know where they were. He said, that was my job. And I, I loved that. He said, I loved that. He said, I loved that. My heart was burning with hatred, he said. He said, and I, I wanted to die to put out the fire in my heart. He said, when I was in Vietnam, he said, I killed. And he said, I had, they'd fill that helicopter with 25 bullets. And I'd just sit out on that skid with my teeth gritting at those people shooting at me. And that's the way he looked. And he said, I was on everything. I was on heroin. I was on cocaine. I shot it up. And he said, if I didn't have anything, I took any kind of pills I could find, crushed them up, stuck them in the syringe, shot them in. And he said, if they didn't go up, I squeezed that bubble to press that stuff to my brain so it would stop the pain in my heart. This guy was amazing. So zealous. And he said, and then when I got out of the war, he said, I came back here. I survived. And he said, I let my hair grow and I let my beard grow and I bought a Harley. You, you gotta figure it, right? And I bought a Harley, man, and he said, I lived that life. And I was a steel worker. He said, I was on top of most of those skyscrapers in LA, and they would dare me to hang off the end at 65 floors, and I'd hang off the end and swing around. I didn't care. I'd do anything to kill that burning in my heart. He said, then I started having an affair with this girl, and he said, this girl became a Christian. And he said, well, I want this thing to keep going, so I'll become a Christian. So I went to church. And I was going to fake it. And this guy preached a sermon, and man, he hit me in the heart and blew me wide open. And I got saved. And you know what? It didn't change his zeal. And then he said, and you know what I do now? I get on those high-rise, and I got those earphones on, and he says, I'm not listening to Led Zeppelin. I'm listening to Bible study tapes. <laughs> he said... <laughs> And he said, I want to, and he starts to preach. He said, I want to tell you something. I like John McCarthy. He's not a Casper Milktoast. He says, he stands for something. That's my kind of thing. He says, if you don't stand for something, you'll fall for everything. And he just took off. I mean, it didn't change his personality at all to get saved. And I said afterwards, hey, if I ever get in a war, I want this guy right here, right beside me. <laughs> I mean, maybe he was a little bit like Simon the Zealot. All that zeal was there. And it just got transferred. Simon the Zealot. Hmm. Think of him in relation to the last guy on our list. Judas. Judas Iscariot. By the way, just as a footnote, they tell us Simon the Zealot got sawn in half when he wouldn't deny Christ. That would do it. Maybe that's what it would take for a guy like him. But think of him in relation to Judas. Judas also was very zealous. Judas wanted to see Jesus establish an earthly kingdom, a political kingdom. And Judas couldn't live with the fact that Jesus wasn't going to do that. Let me tell you a little bit about Judas in the last little while, all right? This is very... Interesting and familiar material to me because when I was in my last year of seminary, we had to write a dissertation. I chose to write my my dissertation on Judas Iscariot. And the reason I chose to do that was because I thought that he was the most fascinating personality that I had ever identified in all of human history. Why? Apart from Jesus Christ, he fascinated me more than anybody else because I couldn't understand how a person could be that close to Jesus for that long and turn out the way he did. The greatest illustration of lost opportunity the world will ever know. It's the darkest tragedy in the history of humanity. It's an unthinkable, unforgettable, unimaginable thing. His name is a byword for betrayal. No one in their right mind would ever name a child after him. 
There are 40 verses in the New Testament in which there is a reference to his betrayal of Jesus Christ. That's all he's known for. In Dante's passage through hell, Judas is depicted as occupying the lowest circle with Lucifer himself, enduring the most punishment possible, banned and shunned from even the caverns of the rest of the eternally damned. That's how despicably he, he is assessed. All we know about him is in the Gospels and his death in Acts chapter 1, and then his name disappears forever. Speaking of his name, Judas was a common name. The form, as I said, of Jehovah, Jehovah leads. Iscariot is very interesting. It means Ishkarioth. It means literally from Karioth. He was from the village of Karioth. One writer says of Karioth, it was 23 miles south of Jerusalem in a direct line there nestled with some hamlets containing farmhouses and these hamlets formed a large village called Kerioth mentioned in Joshua 15:25 not to be confused with Kerioth in Moab 7 miles from Hebron in this peaceful place was born a baby who would be the most hated human being ever to walk the earth he was the only one of the twelve not from Galilee. The only one. He began as an outsider. There is never an occasion in the New Testament when Jesus calls him. We have no record that Jesus calls him. We only have a record that he showed up. But he did join the party. And Jesus wanted him there. No question about it. Jesus wanted him there because he had a job to do. He was to betray Christ. Jesus knew he was the betrayer. And Jesus, knowing that he was the betrayer, wanted him there in order to fulfill prophecy. In John 17, 12, Jesus says he is the son of perdition and he's here in order that scripture might be fulfilled. Because the Old Testament had said Jesus would be betrayed by one of his own. He is a son of perdition. You know what that word means? That phrase, son of perdition, means a lost child. A damned child. It is the same term used in 2 Thessalonians 2.13 for the Antichrist. When Paul wanted to refer to the Antichrist, he used a term that described Judas. He is in that category. He is an apostate who is damned. In fact, in John 6.70, Jesus said about Judas, One of you is a devil. Or literally, one of you is devilish. Outwardly, he didn't appear that way. Outwardly, he was one of the guys. In fact, he didn't appear to have any character defects. What did they put him in charge of? The money. He became the treasurer for the group. I'm sure he finagled that. I know he did. Because we read in the count at Bethany in John's Gospel that he was stealing money out of the treasury regularly. Here was a guy who outwardly was trusted. They gave him the money to kind of support this little band. And he was periodically stealing out of it. But the disciples really didn't know that about him. Because when it came to the time when Jesus says, one of you will betray me. They didn't say, is it Judas? What did they say? Is it I? They didn't have any suspicion at all about him. His background couldn't have been any worse than Matthew, the cursed tax collector. It couldn't have been any worse than Simon the Sicarii, the assassinating terrorist. There were thieves and there were killers in the group, so his background couldn't have been any worse than that. They didn't suspect anything. And yet, from the very beginning, he was a devil. He was a damned and lost man. You say, why did Jesus let him in the group? to fulfill a divine purpose, to fulfill prophecy. And yet what Judas did was still his own doing for which he received a deserved condemnation. What motivated him? Very simple. What motivated Judas was greed, in a word. He was moved by self 
self-fulfilling greed. He joined the group because he believed this man was the Messiah. Not because he wanted a spiritual transformation, but because he wanted to get into the upper echelons of the Messiah's kingdom. It was politically, materially motivated. He wanted to be rich and famous and powerful and have position and prestige. It's obvious he was greedy. How else do you think he got elected treasurer? He must have been very clever in lobbying for that job and then stealing from the treasury regularly. It's an unbelievable thing that he could have been around Jesus Christ like he was and turned out the way he did. Somebody said the same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. He was clay. He was a tear. He was a fruitless branch. I think Jesus had him in mind in John 15 when he said, Every branch that bears not fruit is cut away and thrown into the fire. I think he was talking directly about Judas in that upper room. Judas was a fruitless branch, superficially attached to Christ, producing nothing damned to hell. Jesus was tender with him. In the upper room, when Jesus was having the Last Supper, John 13 says that he took the sop, he dipped it, and he handed it first to whom? To Judas. What is the significance of that? The significance of that is that in an Eastern feast or an Eastern banquet, the person to whom the host gave the first bit of food was considered to be the beloved and honored guest. And Jesus, always compassionate and always tender, gave to Judas that privilege. When Judas first joined the group, he probably had great expectations. He probably thought this was going to be it. Jesus is going to take over. He's going to be the Messiah. He's going to set up his kingdom. And we're going to be right at the top of it. But then it all began to fall apart. Jesus started saying, no, I'm going to die. No, my kingdom is not of this world. It's not going to be the way you think. They tried to make him a king early in his ministry, and he wouldn't let him do it. And Judas probably didn't understand that. And then the more that Jesus began to talk about his death, the more Judas became disturbed. The more panic began to set in because he was caught, see. He had left whatever he was doing to make money, gain power. He jumped on this bandwagon, and now the whole deal was unraveling, and he'd already put in a year or two... And the question he starts asking himself, do I bail out and chalk up the loss or do I try to get as much as I can out of already wasted time? Obviously, he decided to take everything he could take and so he started stealing from the bag and sticking it in his own pocket and figuring I'm going to get every dime I can squeeze out of this wasted time. He started out as a patriot who wanted to see an... Uh, free Israel. He started out as a, a believer in the fact that Rome ought to be booted out. But greed and ambition and worldliness destroyed his heart. And he was so consumed with that stuff that he never saw Christ for who he was and never loved Christ and never bowed the knee to Christ. Unbelievable to see the hardness of sin. He saw Jesus heal Sick people, he saw him give sight to blind people, hearing to deaf people, voices to dumb people. He saw him raise dead people. He saw him walk on water and he saw him do miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle. He saw him remove disease from the land of Palestine and he still didn't believe. Because his heart was so totally consumed with greed. All he could see was his dream beginning to disintegrate and his dream beginning to collapse. And the canker at the root of his character had become a tyrannical passion. And greed and ambition took over completely. And he reached the point where he knew if he was going to get anything at the end of this deal, he was going to have to make a big, fast buck and he was going to have to make it at Jesus' expense and so he sold his soul to the devil like Goethe's Faust to Mistopheles. He gambled and lost his eternal soul. The sad tale begins to unfold in John chapter 12. In John chapter 12 we read, 
about him that he saw Jesus, verse 1 to 8, saw Jesus coming to the house of Lazarus, Mary and Martha. And Mary, verse 3, took a pound of very costly perfume and anointed his feet and wiped his feet with her hair and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Boy, that was really generous. She took something very, very valuable, costly perfume, and she just dumped it on his feet. And then she wiped his feet with her hair and Judas had a fit. Judas says in verse 5, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii? That's almost a year's wages. And given to poor people. Sure. That's not what he wanted. Verse 6, he said this not because he was concerned about poor people, but because he was a thief. And he had the money box. And he used to pilfer what was put in it. He was really tight now. He was really tense. This whole deal is getting away from me. Man, I could have used that money. I could have salvaged something out of these wasted nearly three years. He could have fallen at the feet of Jesus with Mary. But he didn't. Really sad. Story progresses into chapter 13. Down in verse 18, Jesus starts quoting scripture from the Old Testament that he who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. Psalm 41. Somebody eating my bread at this table is going to lift up his heel against me. And then you know the, the little dialogue. Down in verse 25, John leaning on Jesus' breast said to him, Lord, is it I? Is it I? He said, no, it's the one I dipped the morsel and give it to. Verse 26, he dipped the morsel, he took, gave it to Judas, the son of Simon of Iscariot, of Kerioth. And after the morsel, Satan then entered into him. He had lived a dissolute, wicked, sinful, demon-driven life, and now the devil himself takes up residence inside him. Remember, the devil is not omnipresent. If he's in Judas, he's not in anybody else. He was concentrated on Judas. And the devil himself went inside Judas. And Jesus said to him, what you do, do it quick. No one at the table knew what was going on. They were so confident that Judas was on their team. They, they had no idea. Verse 29, some of them thought Judas had the money box and Jesus said to him, you know, buy the things we need for the feast. Or else that he went to give some money to the poor. But he went out immediately. And I like that comment at the end of 30. And it was night. Boy, was it ever night. It was night for him. Forever. Do you know something? Do you know that it, before this happened, Jesus washed Judas' feet? What humility. He washed his feet. He gave him an opportunity to respond to his love, and then he said, get out of here and do what you're going to do. And so he did. Matthew 26, 16 says he sought opportunity to betray Christ. He sought how he might conveniently betray him, says Mark 14, 11. He didn't act in a moment of passion or insanity. He'd been thinking about this a long time. He was figuring, I got to get some money for this. I got to get some blood money. I got to sell Jesus. So you know what he did? He was a coward. So he went to the Pharisees and the rulers at night when no people were around because it says in Luke 22, 6 that he feared the multitude. He wanted to go in the absence of the multitude. He feared the popularity of Jesus. He had remembered the triumphal entry a few days before. And he wasn't going to get himself in trouble. So he sold Jesus for how much? 30 pieces of silver. Say, how much is that? Oh, I don't know. Maybe 50 bucks. He was the blackest sinner that ever lived because he is set against the whitest, purest light of Christ. And so the blackness of his deed shows up. Look at John 18, if you want to see how black it got. John 18, verse 2 says, Judas, who was betraying him, knew the place. He knew where Jesus would be in the 
garden. For Jesus had often met there with his disciples. Judas then, having received the Roman cohort, that's the Roman garrison, the officers from the chief priests, the Pharisees, came with lanterns, torches, and weapons. He comes along with everybody. Why? Because it's night. And you know why he's coming? Because he's got to identify Jesus. He's got to point Jesus out to them. And Jesus, therefore, knowing all things were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered, Jesus the Nazarene. He said to them, I am he. And Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing there. When, therefore, he said to them, I am he, they drew back and all fell to the ground. You know what happened? They said, uh, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. He said, I'm he, and they all fell down. <laughs> Power of his voice. Show you how stupid they were. They got back up again. And then, of course, you know what happened. Peter decided to step in and start fighting on his own. And so he whacked the ear off the servant of the high priest. He was trying to cut his head off. The guy ducked. Jesus gave him his ear back. So Judas and everybody watched him make an ear. Dry up the blood. Bing, put an ear back. And that didn't phase him either. Verse 12 says they, they arrested Jesus. Boy, it's an unbelievable scene. How did Judas identify Jesus? Do you remember? With what? With a kiss. With a kiss. The most diabolical kiss imaginable. Matthew 26, 48, Luke 22, 47. He kissed him in the Greek text. He kept on kissing him. It's an unthinkable situation for someone who has been around Jesus Christ to have come to the conclusion Judas did. So selfish was he. In Matthew 26, 48, it says that Judas said to them, Whomever I shall kiss, he's the one, seize him. And immediately he went to Jesus and said, Hail, Rabbi, and kissed him. And Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you have come for. He came and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. The kiss was feigned friendship, feigned innocence, a weak attempt to conceal his treachery. What a wicked, vicious guy. He was. Well, after he had betrayed Jesus, he didn't feel too good. Chapter 27 of Matthew tells us the end of the story. Then when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that he had been condemned, he felt remorse. And please note, not repentance, but remorse. And he returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders. He said, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, ha, what is that to us? See to that yourself. He threw the pieces of silver into the sanctuary and departed and went out and what? Hanged himself. That's what he should have done. See, sin leaves terrible guilt. Even though it doesn't produce salvation, it still leaves terrible, terrifying guilt. And the monumental sin of Judas bore unbearable conviction on him so that he was literally crushed under it. And he regretted it. And he felt remorse for it. And his heart, instead of crying for forgiveness, cried for vengeance on himself. So he went out and hanged himself. Look at Acts 1, 18. This is the only thing outside the Gospels that's ever said about him. It says in verse 16 that Judas was a guide to those who arrested Jesus. That's right. He was counted among us and received his portion in this ministry. So it's referring back to Judas. And this is what it says in verse 18. Now this man acquired a field with the price of his wickedness. And that's what happened. The Jews took the 30 pieces of silver that he gave back and they bought a field with it to bury strangers in. And it says that he, falling headlong, burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. And the field is called Hakaldama, the field of blood. Now, what's the story here? In Matthew, it says he hanged himself. Here it says he fell headlong burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. Very simple. He hanged himself and the rope broke 
and he fell to the rocks and burst open. And that field is the field of blood. It's a sad tale. It's especially sad when you think of the lessons. Let me give them to you. Rapid fire. Here are the lessons you learn from Judas. He is the world's greatest example of lost opportunity. What a privilege. What a forfeiture. Secondly, he is the world's greatest example of wasted time. What tremendous, tremendous folly. What a stupid bargain he made and wasted those three years that could have changed his eternity. He is the world's greatest illustration of loving money being the root of all kinds of evil. He is the world's greatest illustration of betrayal and he is in a sense the world's greatest illustration of the forbearing, patient love of Christ who gave him every opportunity. So sad. Poet once wrote, still as of old, man by himself is priced. Judas sold himself, not Christ. The Lord uses all kinds of people. Isn't it interesting? He even used this, the wickedest man who ever lived for his own purposes. This is the sum of it. God will use you as his own and reward you for it, no matter who you are. If you love him and follow him. And he'll use you even if you reject him. To fulfill some will. And the consequences are eternal damnation. Everyone. Whether they be a Peter or a Judas. 